Today is May 22nd, 2016, and this is the weekly podcast for Indelible, the documentary film in progress. Working on this project has brought me into contact with a new body of knowledge. It is not one I would have known I would encounter, as I am by philosophy and nature against violence, and I have never owned a gun or even been close to one. Well, that's not exactly true. A few years ago, a sergeant from the King County Sheriff's Office came rushing into my home to prevent me from formally reporting a violation of a protection order I had obtained. He tried to intimidate me the moment he entered my house, and once in, my dog was barking wildly at the loudness of his voice. She was in the bedroom behind a closed door and no threat to the sergeant. But instead of ignoring her, he walked over to the door and put his hand on his gun, ordering me to open the bedroom door. I think we can all imagine what might have happened if I did as he had instructed. So I stood in front of him and said emphatically, no. As I said, my dog was no threat to him, and I was the person who was supposed to be being protected by the order. I had been told by the judge who signed the order to report all violations of that order to the police, which I did. But this was not welcomed by the police. As they later told me, it was only a piece of paper and they did not have to enforce it. It was this action, as well as others since then, that made me understand that the police are not your friends especially if you have been a witness to any activities related to military research. Working on this documentary, I would be remiss if I did not try to understand violence and guns as they are part of almost every part of the story. For instance, Carl Harp was carrying an antique gun when he was first picked up near Gold Bar, Washington on suspicion of rape charges. Police said in their report it was a black powder gun. I had no idea what that meant, so I asked John, Carl's former cellmate and a former vet. He seems to hold a wealth of knowledge about guns of all types. Carl was also given a Winchester 308 by a quote unquote friend a month before the sniper shooting. This friend later did not appear to be much of a friend because of his own upcoming charges related to drug use, and the rifle was used to frame Carl for the sniper crime. On a side note, I recently found a tiny ad in the classified section of a California alternative paper from around 1973. The classified ad was placed by Carl. He was asking for a woman to write him if they ever shot a Winchester 308. He said it was for his appeal. He was writing from prison. As I was taught about the various forms guns have taken over time, I realized that there is a beauty to their form as a machine. Those who have been in the military have both a respect for and love of their beauty. They seem to commonly aestheticize both the forms of weaponry and the acts of violence in war. This seems to also be carried out by police militia groups, and activists who believe in the use of violence. The acts and tools of violence become objects of beauty. 
to these individuals, these forms have symmetry, cohesion, contrast, and reflect light. These qualities are part of all objects considered beautiful in cultures throughout time. The objects of violence and the acts of violence here considered beautiful by those who have been part of these acts and use these weapons are part of our world. They live alongside us, yet we tend to want to not see them unless we must. The acts carried out by the sanctioned military and police are the legal acts, but we also have the illegal acts, the acts of war carried out in dark pool fighting, the paid corporate mercenary fighting. But legal or illegal, the violent acts and the tools of weaponry are made beautiful by those who engage. I was at first surprised by these acts of aestheticizing war and weaponry until I obtained more details. Philosophy teaches us that we are not separate from those who participate in any kind of violence. They are just another part of our human family. It is said to not fear rapists, murderers, or any who carry out dark acts because they too contribute to the meaning in life. As someone who has been a victim of violence, this was difficult to consider. Philosophy says that such dark acts exist in order to see what is light. They provide the contrast. It is best to open up to that which you fear while at the same time offering all that is good into any experience of violence. In doing so, you may likely not experience harm. This seems logical because it is resistance that generates harm in any act of violence. And so I wonder, is the act of aestheticizing weaponry and the acts of violence an action by the participants to let in more light, more humanity into what they also perceive as dark and inhumane, even if they are unwilling to acknowledge this perception? Someone said recently that borders are the cause of war and that without borders in the future, we will have no wars. In this context, they were describing the borders of countries, but borders can also be merely the interface between two opposing forces, two forces of resistance. And now I wanna switch gears and talk about my recent Kafkaesque interactions with those who I've begun to affectionately call the Ministry of Information. I submitted a FOIA Freedom of Information Act, a FOIA request for John Bosch's FBI file with his approval after we met. And yesterday I received a letter from the Department of Justice stating that they could not provide a response or release any documents to me because John was still living and they needed to protect his privacy. I found this absurd, and I've had a hard time reconciling this with what I was told by Seattle police, who said all police records are public records, and that if I wanted to review the what the police had collected in the case where I was the victim, I could make a public records request. But apparently, FBI records are not public. 
So I'm working on a response to this with John's help, and the outcome is just another delay in obtaining information. On another front, John had requested his medical records from a federal prison hospital where he was placed as part of a sentence decades ago. He was told he had stage four lung cancer and was going to be treated at the hospital, but recent doctors have said he has no sign of a former lung cancer. Yet the treatment he received was very invasive. So he felt it important for issues he is currently having with his health to obtain his records so he could learn what treatments he actually did receive. A month after submitting the written request to the hospital, he received a letter telling him to write to the General Counsel of the Bureau of Prisons in Washington, D.C. for the records. He did this and a month later received a letter stating his request for his records is considered a FOIA request and so may be delayed indefinitely. John is not a current inmate and so has HIPAA law protection and should be able to review his medical records on request but apparently former inmates have no rights to what may have been acted out upon their bodies as acts of medicine. And it's important to remember that laws governing medical records on closer inspection can also be used to conceal wrongdoing. Whenever there is a law, there is a way for authorities to abuse it. We have forgotten about this side of the law and you only learn about it once you step over the line and witness a wrongdoing by those in authority. And that's all I have for today. Good night.